The Sydney Opera House acknowledges the Gadigal of the Eora Nation, traditional custodians of Tubagali, the land on which the Opera House stands. We honour the long Gadigal history of gathering and storytelling and acknowledge the strength and resilience of First Nations people and communities past and present. Welcome to Ideas at the House, a podcast featuring talks and ideas from the Sydney Opera House. I'm your host, Frank Newman, Creative Learning Specialist. This podcast is part of a three-part series featuring conversations curated by influential Finnish educator Parsi Salberg. Professor Parsi Salberg is an educator and author. He has worked as a school teacher, teacher educator, researcher and policymaker advising schools and education system leaders including the World Bank, Finland's Ministry of Education and Culture and Harvard University. He is the recipient of numerous prestigious awards and his many publications inspire teachers and education system leaders around the world. Now the Professor of Education Policy at Southern Cross University, Parsi has a particular interest in reframing how we understand health, play and creativity in learning. In this, the first of three episodes, Parsi Salberg talks with the acclaimed businessman David Gonski about the impacts of the 2011 Gonski Report. Joining them is President of the New South Wales Teachers Federation, Angelo Gavrilados, and Principal of Ulladulla High School, Denise Lofts, as well as Year 12 student, Mim McDonnell. Together, they address the various persistent challenges in education and how the report did and did not address those. This frank and thoughtful discussion was recorded live at the Sydney Opera House in 2022 and was David Gonski's only public appearance reflecting on the 10-year anniversary of the famed report. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Thanks everyone for coming here. Excellent. So this is this is going to be the night uh, with these people that you heard uh, previously, and this is going to be the night in the probably one of the most beautiful buildings in the world. And I must say that this uh, house has a very particular place in my heart uh, for many reasons. One of them is actually opportunity to speak in the main stage here that Anne uh, kindly invited me to do. And that's where uh, really the story uh, started. And that was in the year uh, 2012, so almost 10 years ago. And there was something else that happened in 2012, a little bit earlier than that. And this was in February. um, And that was the um, release of the the, uh, final report of the the Konski um, panel's work. And and that's why I'm so happy to have David Konski, who was chairing that panel, and that was released to the public uh, almost exactly 10 years, uh, 10 years ago. And um, that actually happened to be also my, my first visit here. And I'm going to tell you a little bit, uh, little bit more about that. But tonight is not about the, the Konski review itself. Um, this conversation tonight is to, to look at the future. What do we need to do here in Australia to make our education even better, what are those things? And we have about 150, 200 people here in the room. I think we have a lot of different views about what, we, what do we need to do. But we will start this conversation by looking, looking a little bit um, this past 10 years. Um, and, and this is, um, of course, partly because David has, uh, has promised to join us here and, and you bring your, your experience and your thoughts and ideas about what um, that was um, supposed to be and what happened. 
Um, but the, in the end of the evening, I want to hear from you and my guests here, what do we need to do to move, move on? And you know, one of those things people often ask me here when I travel around this beautiful country is that, what has happened to Australian education? That no longer than 10, 15 years ago, we were still considered around the world as a model, as an inspiration for many, and that's true. You know, when I worked in Finland, I was leading the, the education ministry in, in Finland, and we were often referring to Australia and looking at your curriculum and your teacher education and leadership and many other things. But now when you go to these international meetings where people talk about these successful world-class education systems, Australia is less and less often mentioned. And so the question is, that what, ha what has happened? The good news is that we can change the course. We can, we can make this better if we want to. Um, and one of, one of those ways is to have these conversations that we have now. So one thing I hope personally that you will take with you from here is this idea of having a chat around the dinner table or lunch or barbecue, whatever you do, and speak with your colleagues and friends and family members and neighbors about education. That's the, that's the best way to um, uh, you know, move things uh, forward here. So 10 years ago, there's another person here in the, in the room who I, is linked to my, actually my presence here right now, and it's uh, Angelo uh, Cavriolatos. I want to have a little chat with Angelo in, in a moment, but can we, um, can we play a little video? I brought here student voices, because for me, as a former teacher and educator, it's very important to have young people's voice here as well. So we have um, three different young people, and then we have one, one live person here, Mim, who is going to join us in a panel. But I'm going to show you these things also in the sense of trying to appreciate the importance of uh, having an insight from youngsters. So can I have the first uh, clip right now, please? Uh, well, yeah, if we had the funding, we have, say, right now in our classes, we have the main teacher who is, you know, somewhat of an expert in that field that they're teaching, say, for history. Um, and at the moment, you might have a kid, like, a class of 30 or more kids, and that teacher can, like, it has to address that whole class, but only a certain amount of kids will be able to understand that off the bat, will be able to comprehend it and take it away and learn more of it. A lot of kids can't though. A lot of kids, you know, that don't seem to want to be at school, either lack of confidence, the ability or the understanding. Um, with the funding, I think we need teachers who are specialised in um, tutoring and understanding different, um, you know, behavioural and learning patterns to uh, break down what the teacher, the main teacher is saying, to deliver it to them in a different way and help them understand it and um, if they need again afterwards during the breaks or anything like that, just to reinforce it, go back to it, and get them on track with their assignments. Wonderful. Yeah, let's give a good hand. She's, um, she's Ebony from Aladala High School. Angela, join me here for a moment, and let's, uh, let's have a little chat about this uh, Konski, Konski review. Um, you know, this is what happened uh, almost 10 years ago. Uh, there are two things I knew about Australia. One was that it's a far away from almost every, everything. <laughs> and second was that Australia had a great education uh, system, a very good reputation in education, but that something had happened. <clears throat> so Angela, Angela and your colleagues, you were the president of the Australian Education Union that time. So he invited me to visit Australia for the first time in my life in 2012, February. And I was waiting for my flight to depart 
at the Los Angeles International Airport when Angelo uh, sent me the um, sent me an email or text message saying that <clears throat> something important is happening here. Uh, take a take a look at this message, and there was the I still think still embargoed. You're, you're telling people that I breached an embargo. <laughs> no, no, sorry, it, it was just released. Uh, cons, final, final uh, Konsky, Konsky uh, panel re report. So I downloaded this report, and it happened to be 350 pages or 400 pages, thick pile of text. And the flight from Los Angeles to Sydney is about 15 hours, right? So it took about 15 hours of reading and three gin tonics to go through this report. And I can tell you one thing, people, that I was really inspired. I was energized. And, and my, my first thought was, was that, you know, the solution is right here. If you read the report, th that's the conclusion that you can get. That these people know what to do. And so what the heck I'm going to have to say to these people because I have nothing, nothing to offer. You know, many of these things, David, that you had in your report were exactly the things that the, the best education systems, including Finland, was doing that time. Funding schools based on the needs was exactly the principle that everybody was doing. So I was, I was kind of convinced that this is, this is going to be the great journey that started 10 years ago. But before we uh, go in, I have a couple of questions for you. What, for those who are not familiar with the Konski, panel review, the first one, how would you explain what it is? What is the Konsky report, what every, everybody's talking about now? Well, thanks very much, Parsi. Can I start off, please, by acknowledging country and pay respects to elders past, present and emerging? And before I go to that question, I need to do something, because I've never done this publicly. I want to thank David Gonski. Yeah. and apologise for soiling his family name with the I Give a Gonski <laughs> campaign. <laughs> you know, many of us entered teaching, education, because that fundamental belief in the transformative power of education and what it means for every child, or what it should mean for every child and every child's family, their community and their nation as a whole. The recommendations in the report gave us the best chance to realise that, that dream of every child having the best chance in life because it created something very special in that report. And that's what we call, and I'm sorry if I'm being technical here, the schooling resource standard. That minimum amount of funding considered necessary. It's not an aspirational amount. The minimum amount of funding considered necessary if every child is to be given that best chance to achieve their very best. And for that, we are indebted to David, the panel as a whole, and the report, its findings, because notwithstanding all the issues that have emerged since then, that schooling resource standard is still enshrined in legislation. And that still gives us hope. So to be completely clear, so do we have it now? across the country? What, in other words, what has happened in, after 10 years of the work that this gentleman and his team did? What, do we have it? Do we have this system now? So let me reiterate. The good news is the Education Reform Act introduced by the Gillard government and the schooling resource standard, that critical piece of architecture, is still enshrined in law. Unfortunately, that's where the good news ends 
because there has been failure thereafter in the implementation and execution of the big ideas of the report. Such failure that it's led people like myself to conclude, not conclude, but lament that the hope that we had has been extinguished to an extent, but one that we must try nonetheless to achieve. And I'll explain why it's been extinguished. The schooling resourcing standard was intended to address, to, was developed in recognition of the fact that there is no level playing field. Kid, kids come to school with many different experiences where we still have in this wealthy country serious disadvantage, whether it be socioeconomic disadvantage or disadvantage because of rurality, indigeneity, English language proficiency, the list goes on. The schooling resource standard gave us the mechanism in order to provide the funding to those schools that need it most to give every child that opportunity to succeed. But 10 years later, in New South Wales, our schools are only at 88% or 87% if I want to be technical, 88% <laughs> if I'll be generous, of that minimum level of funding. 88%. That means effectively one in eight kids are not being funded. In New South Wales, that means 100,000 kids are effectively not being funded. And the other thing is that we've seen a corruption of that ideal of needs-based funding because in the last 10 years, and, and as a result of that, in the last 10 years, funding has increased in private schools at five times the rate of public schools because of interventions, political interventions, courtesy of the federal government. $5 billion additional to private schools whilst public schools remain at only 87% of their minimum level of funding. $5 billion additional uh, to private schools and nothing for public schools from the federal office. But some, some schools have received this so-called Konski funding. So when, when did this money start to flow in and what, what has happened with that? So the money started to flow in some jurisdictions, not all jurisdictions, but in New South Wales the money started to flow in 2014-15. But not all the money, because it was going to be a staged introduction of additional funding over six years. Unfortunately, in the execution of the report, the staged introduction was such that two-thirds of the money was going to come in the last two years of that funding agreement, of that six-year period, and it never came because there was a change of government. Whilst Tony Abbott at the time and Christopher Pine tried to distract attention saying there is a unity ticket, because of our efforts, in no small part, the body politic had accepted this notion of needs-based funding, and Tony Abbott and Christopher Pine came out and said there's a unity, unity ticket. But there was no unity ticket because there was no commitment to the final two years of funding where two-thirds of the additional funding lay. And therefore, yes, some money started flowing in and great things happened with it mm. and are still happening with it. But it's only a small fraction. It's one-third of the additionality, pardon the term, that was associated with the reforms. Yeah. Yeah. So many, I know that many people are concerned about the actual learning outcomes and I think it's a fair question and this, this is the last question here for you. 
uh, Angela, a fair question to ask that we, we have had these reforms and, and the Konsky Review recommendations is part of that. And as you said, that there has been some schools and some money has gone in. But are we seeing anything in the learning outcomes, the measure we have NAPLANS and OECD pieces and others, that are the results getting any better? Well, you should know better than that. <laughs> I'm just asking. <laughs> you should know better than that. Well, first and foremost, with respect to PISA, you know there's always a time lag, that the results that are reported are always results that were the, the outcome or the, the, the result of tests that were some two or three years prior to the announcement. So um, it's too early. It's too early. We could also have other discussions about other fundamental structural issues that impact on those things, but we won't. Um, we could. <laughs> but there has been change. There have been improvements. Because even with that limited amount of money, we have seen schools being able to implement a whole range of programs, um, literacy numeracy programs, um, remedial programs, uh, extension programs, professional learning. Our biggest frustration is the what if. Right. What if we had that minimum level of funding that David and the report recommend? The report was an incredible report and the fact that we're still talking about it the fact that it changed the narrative in this country, I think, speaks volumes for it. That's We've right. got a long way to go. Um, the hope has not been entirely extinguished, David. Um, we're going to carry on. Okay. Thank you, Angela. I want to do stay here just for a moment, and we're going to look, watch another one. This is a Ritzy from again from Aladala High School, and I, I think that he is a good example of somebody who would really benefit uh, from these additional needs-based funding. Just take a look. Um, yeah, I just wanted to say on more like stuff, people helping people with like dyslexia and ADD. Like I had both of those and I really struggled growing up through like high school and stuff and since last year I've only just started getting help with ADD and the teachers didn't really understand it much. So I think teachers should like learn more about that. Thank you, Angela. Thank you, Richie. Okay, folks, uh, the next uh, guest here on the stage doesn't uh, need any more introductions. Uh, I have a great honor and pleasure to sit down with uh, David Konsky himself um, and have a conversation about a little bit about these things, but also I want to speak with David about how he sees, um, as a, somebody who knows business uh, life here upside down, but also leads one of the, one of the great universities here in, um, in Australia, the future, where we should be going. David, can I invite you here to join us, please? First of all, thank you once again. How are you? I'm well. Good. <laughs> so, um, 10 years has passed now since the, uh, since the report made um, available for, for people like us here and uh, you know, the amazing thing is that even students like Mim and, uh, and her friends that, you know, these kids know your reports. They know the Konsky, Konsky Review and, and what Konsky stands for. Um, but then, you know, there are, there are critics, as you know, that there are people who, uh, who write and say that uh, what you were proposing 10 years ago was based on wrong funding formulas and ideas. Uh, but then there are, there are also those who, um, like Angela mentioned, see the Konsky re your review 10 years ago 
as a great new opportunity to think differently about education here. And I'm, I'm sure that uh, friends here are very keen to hear from you directly, David. How do you see now, if you think backwards these 10 years, um, uh, that what are your thoughts about this review, this work that you did, and, and how, how, how do you see these things that have happened or have not happened? Well, firstly, thank you very much for being here. And uh, I think the fact that you're here, I think, uh, underlines how important education is. And some of you may disagree with what's in the review, but I still thank you for coming. <laughs> um, can I also, just before I, I start, can you imagine a review on education being done by a non-teacher who's a merchant banker from the eastern suburbs of Sydney and he meets the head of the union. And I remember the first meeting and I remember what a quality person I met. And I just want to put that on record and I don't mind if it's written anywhere. This guy walked and talked the actual education benefits at times we disagreed, but we both left the room. I think, well, I'll talk for myself, I admired him, even when he said to me, you've got to do that. And I said, no, because he probably had a few other things he wanted anyway. But the, the fact is that what happened now 10 years ago is that we had a chance. I think whether it was a great report or not, that's for others to judge, and I'm absolutely delighted Angelo judged it well. Um, but we brought together a lot of people. We brought together both those involved in education, those involved in business. You have no idea how many of my business colleagues actually read it. For them to read an education report, it's amazing. And they can read, by the way. Um, <laughs> and the fact is they all felt that needs-based funding made sense. It made sense to finding good employees in time. It made sense to the competitive nature of Australians wanting to win in PISA scores. It made sense, obviously, and we'll hear from Denise later, at the level of the educator. So coming back to your question, forgive me going around a long way. Firstly, I'm amazed it's 10 years. Second, I don't resile, and you caused me to think about it when you asked me to be here. I don't resile at all from some of the imperatives in the report. I believe absolutely that we have to deal with disadvantage in education. And I've said, I didn't put it in the report, but I didn't realise until I started writing with my team this report that my own father was a disadvantaged student. It's just amazing you don't know that till you're about 50 years old. It's just amazing. Um, so I believe in that. I believe in the needs-based formula that we put and we can debate whether it's SRS or whatever, and you can titivate that. I believe also that in terms of the monies that were needed, we were right to ask for more money, and as the report says, that the bulk of that money needed at that time, and I believe it still is the case, to go to the public system. Right. We did make mistakes, and if you ask me, I'll tell you what they are, but trying to be a good politician, I won't go there. Yeah, I'm, I'm sure that somebody there will, in the audience will, will raise this issue. But let me, let me ask a little bit about this needs-based funding, because that is, and as you said, that you, you, you see the, that as a, as a very important part of the work. But if you think about the, you referred to the business, your business colleagues and friends who actually read the report, but is this something that, 
is widely understood or was widely understood 10 years ago that we really need a needs-based funding before, this, before your colleagues and, and friends read the report? Or is this something that people began to kind of understand that maybe David is, has a point here, we need to think again? No, I think, look, being fair, I don't think 10 years ago the business community, others can talk about the education community, had ever heard of needs-based funding. I'm not sure I had. But what we did was we articulated that. That was one of the major things we wanted to do. And it took favour yeah. because it makes sense. Yeah. And by the way, it isn't, and we can debate that, seeking to take away money from others. Basically what it's saying to the governments, plural, not just federal government, that the way to fund schools is based on a minimum formula and if people can get better than that, God bless them. But a minimum formula funded by both Commonwealth and state, what we inherited in uh, you know, 2011, 2012, was a situation where the Commonwealth gave money to the non-government schools and, of course, the state paid for the, um, the government schools. Well, we said, bring it together. Now, that sort of happened. Um, maybe it hasn't happened to the level. And I think, by the way, Angela explained the problem perfectly. But this was a, a dawning of thinking. And all I can say is, and you'd expect maybe I've got a different vantage point, maybe and others can comment, but I think it was well accepted. It was legislated. It is there. There's even a body to determine independently, as we suggested, what that SRS should be. But as Angela, I think, very articulately put it, it hasn't been funded. Right. right. And by the way, I'm not... Um, being political here on any political party or indeed government or state. I'm just making that fact. Yeah, okay. I, ha I have to ask this question, David. Tell us one mistake you made. <laughs> uh, can I tell you two? <laughs> tell us two, okay. All right. There were two mistakes. The one which I really regret, and Angelo and I talked about this afterwards, you know, sometimes, certainly when you write a report, or maybe in the case of many of you, a book or whatever, you can get a little carried away. We actually were able, with some help from both the union, I have to say, but also from the education departments around Australia, we mapped each school. We had IT going galore, and we worked out exactly what the SRS requirement is and came to a figure of five billion extra dollars. 15% increase, um, 5 billion sounds a lot more, by the way, than 15% increase in funding. I should never have put that in the report. To those who felt they had to pay it, it was too much. And for those who wanted to fund the schools, it was too little. And everybody debated, you may recall, the 5 billion rather than the neat phrase, needs-based funding. The second thing we do, and it'd be interesting to hear whether Angela agrees with this, is I accepted, and I was one of the people that was convinced, that we should pay this money to systems. So we would, the feds and so on would pay the monies to the states. The Catholic system would take the money, and this is not a criticism of the systems, but I think we should have been true to our formula, which was to trace it through to every single student in every single school. That was a mistake. Okay, All right. fair, fair enough. Now, uh, if you go back to what Angela was saying about these improvements, and, and you, can, you can read this 
um, in other documents as well that the the review uh, and the outcomes of the the part of the implementation has done good things for some schools. But then we also heard from and, and we have been reading about this recently that how much more government funding has been growing and increasing for non-government schools and they are often not always but often schools that don't need that much money. And the fact is that um, no, at least here in New South Wales, that no government school is yet fully funded to the point of the standard. Um, uh, and I'm curious to hear what your thoughts about this type of news that, that, because for me it sounds like it's going exactly the opposite way, what, what the uh, panel review was recommending of funding schools based on their needs. Uh, but is this something that surprised uh, you? I or? look at it very simply. And, you, you know, you can say, well, he's a businessman, that's the way he looks at it. I am not a person that says, because this school's getting more, that's bad. I am a person that believes we should have an objectively put together SRS, and the disappointment for me is not that that other school got more, but that, as Angelo put it, 88%, I think there's only one territory it is, it's not even a state, or maybe they are a state now, yeah, that's it who actually gets more than that, says so 88%. We felt it should be 100. And I think well, Angelo put it nicely with his one-eighth and all that, and that's <laughs> mathematically correct. Um, and that's my disappointment. My disappointment is not why, where they put other monies. I'm not a politician. My job, and by the way, it's been, uh, it, there is criticism of our report that it was all about funding. Have a read what we were asked to do and to ask me, even though I am now a chancellor of a university, to do an educational review, other than lead as I did the second one, which was a more technical one, is wrong. I am a funding person, and I think the disappointment, and I agree, I think, with Angela, we should fund 100% of the SRS. Now, if the government can't afford it and has to find other sources for that, it's up to them how they do that. If they have to slow down other schools, that's up to them, not to me. If they have to take it away from roads, although I've got to say, having driven here today, the <laughs> roads need some money in Sydney. But that's a different thing. Yeah. Yeah, that's a good... So do we need... Is there, is there need for a, a, a third Konski review? All these things considered? <laughs> and would you be interested in leading one more? <laughs> I, I doubt they would ask me to do it, but I tell you what would be interesting, listening to uh, uh, Angela, it would be terrific to do an audit and publish something on the thing, which I won't do, but obviously if somebody wants to do it, it would be a good thing to do. Because, you know, it's interesting, in my life, and I've been around a long time, there are many things that haven't stood 10 years. Yeah. Many ideas I thought were brilliant, which turned out to be bad, Many ideas I thought were brilliant that lasted two days, right? But having said that, I think this report does set where we should head. And, of course, it's up to those who govern us to decide how quickly we get there, etc. Right, right. You know, one thing that this, uh, your, your work uh, on this, especially this first, first uh, panel review, was that you have become, in a way, a, a champion of equity. Yeah, although the the, uh, the review itself was more about funding, but the, the purpose of fair funding or needs-based funding is to enhance equity. And, and, and this is something that, you know, anybody here who is uh, 
following what is happening uh, in other countries uh, is aware of this that international organizations like the OECD and UN organizations um, regularly rate Australia as less equal or equitable when it comes to education. Um, actually, some organizations refer Australia as one of the most unequal uh, educationally, uh, which again speaks in, in the, for, for the need of you know, more work like what you have been doing. Um, and and you, said, you said yourself, and when we spoke about this event before, you, you underlined very heavily that, that you are not an educator, you're not a teacher or uh, education expert, but you are, again, you are leading the university and, and you're, looking at, you're looking at these education-related issues here in Australia in a much more broader perspective than many educators do, that you are interested in higher education and economy and employment and many other things. And I would like to ask you this question, and feel free to say that you, you decline to, to answer, but I, I also want to ask this equity question from you because, you know, I came here four years ago, and you were, personally, you were a big part of my decision with my family to come here because first time when we met, you, um, you mentioned about the Konski Institute at the USW, and, um, Adrian Piccoli, the former minister, was uh, appointed as a director. And it was like, for me, as a, as a perfect combination of a very interesting and rewarding uh, opportunity to work in the real issues, like this equity thing. I knew this four years ago when I came here. When I look at Australia vis-a-vis uh, -vis other countries, I, I, I knew, and many people ask me this, I said, our biggest issue is the, the lack of equity, and particularly funding thing. Um, so... You know, if you think about whatever this equity means for you, but you and you have one of the most beautiful definitions for educational equity on the page 97 of your report, how you define it in a way that you know many others are using that definition to explain people what educational equity uh, equity means. But and this is my question for you, David: that is, is, do you see that equity in education is really the key? to improving Australian education. Now when we are moving forward, is, is equity the thing in education that we need to keep in the agenda? And equity by equity, I mean much more than just fair funding of the schools. What, what are your well, thoughts about this? You know, you're talking to a lawyer, not a teacher. <laughs> um, a lawyer would say, well, what does equity mean? I'll tell you what really motivated me, and still does. When Julia Gillard got up in Parliament, and said, demography should not determine destiny. That meant a hell of a lot to me. Now, if that is what you're talking about, yeah. inequity, big tick, I agree. Some people, however, say, no, equity is something different. Equity is all schools get the same, etc." That's not my definition of equity. I, I don't think that a, anybody thinks like this here, David, to oh, be honest. I'll show you the, <laughs> the, the article the other day, not yours. But, <laughs> But the point I'd make is, as a, as a business person, as a human being, not only do I believe that your destiny should not be determined by your demography, but I also believe that we have an obligation to maximise human capital. And that means for the benefit of an individual, but for the nation as a whole. That means that everybody should have opportunities. I mean, it's quite interesting... I've got, I am lucky enough to be Chancellor of a university with 62,000 students. Just over 45,000 of them are basically funded by the government to come to us. That's fantastic. Mm, that's now, they still have to get there, they still have to eat, they still have to live. That's a different question. That's something we've got to work on. But I love that. 
Right. Very few universities of the caliber that we've got in Australia, we've got 40 of them, yeah. sorry to get onto universities, but uh, are basically available like that. And I think that is a strength in Australia. That is absolutely, you're right. Uh, going back to the school, uh, school issue and equity and, um, and you know, however you define it, but in the future, when we look at the future and, and the, the theme of this conversation here is fixing Australian education or education system, do you think that we, need, we still need to fix this funding thing that you tried to do 10 years ago, like a seriously, like co complete that plan? Or do we need to think differently about this thing? Or what, what, what's well, your view you on this? Well, when you say think differently, I don't think differently. I, we're going to say it's a used car salesman. He's got one car to sell and he's still <laughs> trying to sell it. But I agree with what Angelo says. So if he changes his mind, tell it, tell me. But I think... 88% in my university is a high distinction, but you can get 100. I think one should try to get to that. And by the way, the SRS moves. In the 10 years, it's moved for inflation, etc. So probably it's getting away from you, but one should work on it. I believe that. Now, others will say, well, money doesn't solve the problems. Well, firstly, my job was on funding. It's the people in this room who are the educators to work out if they had that money, what's the best use of it? But I'm absolutely certain, and I've read some of the papers which you've actually sent me, thank you, um, that actually show that money does have good results in education. Yeah. And that it's probably fairly ignorant to say that funding doesn't help to improve education. Wonderful. That's great, isn't it? Wonderful. <laughs> you know, David, we could go on and on and on with you here and, and, and go deeper into uh, funding and, and education and other things, but um, we, we cannot actually continue like this. We need to have probably the most important people with us, and that's why we have uh, Dennis Lofts, uh, the principal of the great Aladella High School, yeah. coming, yes, and Mim McDonald. <laughs> and Mim, Mim is here 12. Student, I asked her before uh, before you came in here that how long you've been in a school, and she said oh, almost 13 years, I think. Yep. So she has probably more experience in education than most <laughs> of us here in this room. So, so thanks for thanks for coming, and uh, and I really want to have this a conversation, including David and uh, all of us. But since we have this most experienced educator uh, here, I mean, I would like to start with you and. Um, uh, can you tell just very briefly about your school? What is, what is Aladella High School, public school, like? Yep, um, well, Aladella High School is a great high school. I'm very proud to go there. I'm very glad that I got accepted there when I was in year six. Um, and I believe there's a great bunch of people. We have a lovely environment at our school. You know, where we eat lunch is beautiful. Um, and we have a great community as well outside of school. And I'm, I think I'm just really lucky to have Miss Loss as a principal and other great teachers. I'm going to give the bad news in a minute. <laughs> <laughs> and other great teachers. I think at our school we have some really great teachers. So I'm glad. Wonderful. Thanks for coming here. No worries. Dennis, you, yeah. uh, I, I came to your school about a year ago yep. and I spent a day and I saw, I saw exactly these wonderful things that you, you, you mentioned. And, um, uh, you know, somehow the, the whole atmosphere was such that it was hard for me to believe that you had 1,200 
students? Yeah, we do. 1,250. And they all seem to be pretty much knowing what's going on and what to do. And uh, I was kind of curious, how do, you, how do you keep that type of school in such an order and, and focused on, on learning? Um, but then, th then we had a conversation in your, in, in your room, in, in your own office, and it became very clear that leading a school of 1,200 kids and huge stuff is not easy. So what, what keeps you busy or awake at nights related yeah. to the work? It's really interesting. My son is in the audience <coughs> and he will know that um, it's long, long hours. And, and what keeps me busy is, is um, you know, from, from the emails to the, um, from the department, you know, the whole um, record keeping, administration, um, you know, I do staffing, I do, I look after the grounds, I look after the, um, you know, the buses, you know, all that real, that, all that administration stuff. And, but I, however, I do also try to focus on my um, educational leadership as well. But that's something that's squeezed in. And, and also people development is, is a big, um, big part of my role as well. And it's interesting that I've moved into sort of advocating for other principals. But, um, you know, I, I don't, I sp I'm at school at seven, I leave at seven, and I probably spend um, uh, a day, probably 10 to 12 to 14 hours on the weekend. And, you know, I mean, it's a life of passion. I mean, I probably could make a lot of money doing something else. But, but I think, um, you know, in terms of the administration and, and what I have, I have, you know, a site manager, I have a business manager, but, um, you know, that aside, I think, you know, yeah, running a school is, is, takes a lot of... Um, yeah, a lot of time, and there's a lot that I have to um, do in terms of the, the administration and, and, yeah, all of those things. But it's, it's interesting. I also um, spend a lot of my time kind of advocating as well. I was just saying that um, I'm really big on, on filling out grants for philanthropic support because I, you know, we, I, I have to make ends meet, and that's what I, I sometimes prioritise that over, that bunch of emails <laughs> in my email box, but... Yeah, so that's part of the role, and I didn't think that would be ever part of my role, but it's it's actually becoming more. So has, has the, the, the Konsky Review, this 10 years, done anything for your school? Is it something that the people are aware of? Yep. So I think when, you know, they talk about this, you know, it was like funding went like that. So when it first came in, we actually started to get momentum. You know, we were putting in tutors because we thought, okay, we can start to grow. We were able to... Um, uh, run different programs, you know, breakfast club, et cetera, et cetera. And it was almost like we got to a momentum, but I think, you know, then, then, then it's actually just plateaued and we actually, you know, with the increase of cost of things, we haven't actually been able to grow uh, grow those programs as we would have wanted to. And, and that's why I kind of thought have moved to philanthropic support right. to make up the balance of what wasn't there. Yeah. So, you know, from being able to run robotics programs, from tutoring um, to student support officers, counsellors, et cetera, et cetera. So, so we have a philanthropic um, student support officer that's paid by somebody else. Um, we've got a building that's been funded by Sony um, called our sanctuary that's just about to open. So all of these things I've had to source outside, but we needed them. I, I, I didn't, you know, we, need, we needed opportunities for robotics. We needed opportunities... For, for a, a sanctuary where those students who weren't, couldn't fit in the mould of what, you know, a big high school is, um, 
we had to, to, to have something different. I have 12 support classes, so that's 100 kids with disabilities, um, as well as, you know, obviously First Nations kids. And so we have a, such a diverse range of, of needs. So, yeah. yeah, yeah. Mim, you told me that your both parents are teachers, right? Yes. And your mother happens to be somewhere here? Yes, she's in there somewhere. Where's Mim's mother? Over there. Okay, your sister is there as well? Yes. Wonderful. Good. So, you know, my question to you was that um, being a child of a two teachers, what is the probability that you're going to be a teacher as well? <laughs> <laughs> and my answer was very quickly low. How, how low? <laughs> so probably 20, 30%. <laughs> oh, wow. Look at this. So, so what, can, can you speak a little bit about why, why you think like this? I think very highly of teachers. They're all around me in my life. You know, as a school student, they're the main people I interact with on a day-to-day -day basis. I think everyone who becomes a teacher has great intentions. As Angelo spoke about, um, you know, they believe in the power of an educator, and I respect that. But it's an industry that I see reflected in my parents at home and the way that a lack of support for teachers has an impact on them. And it's not really the system I want to go into when I become employed and go into my first job. So what, what should change to, to make you change your mind that maybe teaching is... Uh, and you know, you're studying, you're studying physics and chemistry and technology and mathematics, all those things. Yes. You could get you know, any job in any school here if you want to, but <laughs> what, what, what do you think should change in, a teaching, in, the, in the lives of teachers? that would change your mind a little bit? I think um, Ebony spoke about it on the video when she said, you know, you've got 30 kids in a class with one teacher. There's a lack of resources. There's a lack of them being able to focus on the teaching and connecting with each student. And that comes from time and money. Um, and then there's a lack of support as well. When things go wrong and they have a bad day or classes aren't going the way they hope, there's no support for some people in some cases. And I think if we can improve that support, Ebony suggested some more teachers in the classroom, and we see an improvement in that with some co-teaching that we have at our school sometime, um, and, you know, more time to focus on what they're there to do. You know, they're there to teach us to create that impact from the grassroots, you know, and through us. Right, right. You know, now I have a question for all of you, including David here. And, and yesterday I spent, um, I spent a day in um, another beautiful city here in Australia, Adelaide. And the South Australia has a, has a plan, kind of a statewide plan, to, to have a world-class education system by 2028. And my question to you is, when, when, you look, when you look at your own school, your own studies, and you don't need to think about other schools or the, the system, and, and Denise, when you, you know many other schools than yourself, um, and David, you have this helicopter view, you look at the system uh, through higher education and some others. Is it fair to say that we have, we have world-class education here in Australia right now? How would you respond to this? I think we have world-class education in a few schools. <laughs> but but not, not all. No, I, there's definitely, um, it's definitely out there. You can find it. And what, what, what are you thinking about when you, when you think about world-class education? What does it mean? You know, this was my question yesterday in, uh, in Adelaide. What, what are you talking about? What, what, what does it look like? But when you speak about world-class education for yourself, what, what, what is it? I think it's about looking 
taking a step back and looking at the people we're creating, the means that we're creating them through, um, and the resources we have to do so and do so properly. Um, you know, at our school, we're very lucky. We have so many subjects to choose from when we go even into our year nine electives, let alone our year 11 and 12. Um, and that, that is a world-class example. You know, we're a microcosm of real-world industries within our school. So we need to keep emanating those real-world industries inside schools through resources, through teaching um, processes, um, and continue to kind of look at it from a step back and holistic people that we're building. Right. Good. Before, before going to, yeah. to, to Denise, can I ask, ask you with a show of hands, each of you here, uh, to raise your hand up if you believe that it's fair to say that Australia has a world-class education system, including higher education. Put your hand up if you think so. Hey, come on, people. I think we do. No, I don't. No. Yeah, okay. Slowly but surely you think like this. Yeah, but it, you know, it goes back to this, this same question. What, what is the world class? What does it mean? And I think we need, to, we need to think far beyond this normal metrics of just measuring some things. But, Denise, what's your response? I think we've probably got some teachers in the room that have just been through some pretty hairy times. Um, but, <laughs> you know, and I've been right there with you all. Trust me. Um, but I think what essentially what I think people feel is, yes, we do, but not for everybody. And, and essentially that's... And, and I see that in my own school, you know. And I, I've had um, a couple of... I have 104 uh, First Nation kids and I had a, um, someone take four of them and offer them a scholarship and take them away. And my most upset thing was, what about the other 100 and, you know, if you want to give that opportunity, then you actually need to provide it to everybody. And, um, you know, I don't put the words in my, in, you know, um, Mim is just on the money. But, um, you know, we do have world class. And, and I think, you know, as, as David, and I really appreciate um, the way in which you listen to educators. I know you did 400 interviews for your review. And, you know, the fact is, what I find is we can be continued or meet that goal, but we're actually not listening to the people who kind of know what we need in schools. And, you know, if we don't, and I, I think what, what probably is in the room is, is we're losing a little bit of hope. And so therefore, you know, it's not seen as a world-class system because of that inequity that, that, you know, people can't put up their hand and go, yep, 100%. Currently, we're what 89 percent. I thought it was a bit generous, actually, Angela. It's the right number. I thought I thought it was 79 percent, but anyway, that's um. <laughs> so so I thought it was you know gilding the lily a little bit there, but but and you know how can we for the greater good of our of our kids? And I see this all the time, you know, in terms of what I can provide and 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 um, you know, it's the individualism, and I speak about this to my students all the time. You know, that, that um, it's not okay if you can't look in the eyes of a, a, a young person who hasn't had breakfast, who probably didn't even sleep in their own bed, and, 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 and look away and think, it's all about me. And we talk about this greater good. And so when you're looking in the eyes of your classmate, then, then um, you, you've, you've got to understand that poverty. or, or um, and, and that's why I'm really, you know, I could... I'm so committed to public education for that reason. Mm -hmm. Absolutely, and the greater good, and, and it's not about me, 
so to speak. Right. So does that answer your question, Parsi? <laughs> Go ahead. That's, yeah, no, I just, you know, in terms of the world-class system, I mean, ah, you know, okay. why, why people could really go, oh, I really can't put up my hand because yeah. I can see there is the inequity. You know, if we all went, great, every First Nation kid, whether he lives in Menindee or lives in Ulladulla, is getting a world-class yeah. um, education, yeah. I think we could all put up our hand. Yeah. So uh, what yeah. we need is an Australia where everyone goes, yep, We've got a world-class system. But David, you had your hand up. Yeah. World-class education. But you added universities. You can, yeah, I, I, I thought that you were thinking about UNSW, <laughs> but I'm sure that your, your thinking goes beyond the universities. No, but well. firstly, can I just go back a step? Denise said she thanked me for listening to educators. Just listen to her. I mean, what I found is the people who know about the schools are the people in the schools. That's the first thing I learned. Thank you. And the second thing is, and I'm, you know, I'm a hard-nosed business person, in terms of the commitment that you talked about, you're talking six days a week from morning till night, mm. your empathy and your, I've got to say, your worldliness of being able to run an enterprise of 1,250 people, how many staff? Yeah. And they all like me still. <laughs> you were, you're just going off, that, so that's impossible. <laughs> um, well, but, no, that's true, actually. The they don't is, all like... Uh, the, the principles of these schools are amazing and there may be some in the audience yeah, and good lots. on you. And what I think is, firstly, as an old lawyer, I don't know what a world-class system is. There are many parts of the world I wouldn't emulate. We want the best system. And the best system may well be crafted for ourselves. It isn't at 88%. It isn't at 78 It is 88 yeah. Um, but never argue with him. No. Um, but the, the fact of the matter is we need to get it to the 100 and the SRS will move with what we want to achieve. Yeah. The idea of an SES was to be aspirational in the end, that all the boats should be lifted over time. Mm. And that's what we need to aspire to. As to how the money is used, the experts like you have to deal with it. And I agree with you. Of course, there's good schools and there are also people who are getting brilliant educations. Mm. But that's not everybody. Mm. It's wonderful. Thank you. Angela, did you put your hand up or not? No. <laughs> I can see it. I'll give you a sentence or two, please. <laughs> Look, uh, in, to your question... Regrettably, it's not a world-class system because it can only be defined as a world-class system if, if it is such and so for every child. Mm. We have framed everything. We look at everything through that prism of does this apply to every child? There is no perfect uh, education system, by the way. Uh, in any country, we all strive for that progressive refinement to arrive somewhere, to get somewhere. We've just got a long way to go because of the, the equity issue that is unresolved and the fact that we've not got the resources in the schools that need them for every child. Thank you. Yeah, you know, people often ask me, uh, and, and you can read more about this in this Griffith Review essay if you're interested. By the way, the whole book is wonderful collection of, of writing of Australian uh, people about the education here right now, today. But, I, you know, my, my line there is that when I'm asked, and I, I, I'm regularly asked by my co colleagues and friends overseas that, you know, after all these years in Australia, what, what do I think uh, about school education or higher education here? And I always say exactly what you said, Dennis, that I think we have the best education here that any, other, any country can offer, but it's not available for 
everyone. And it's wonderful to hear what you said, uh, David, about uh, higher education institutions make, making world-class education available for more and more. But we need to work much more to make sure that each and every child, just like Angela and, and Dennis and everyone been saying the same thing. You know, the positive thing here for me is that when I travel around this beautiful country and visit schools and meet people like, like you and students like you, Mim, that there's so much potential here. There's so much knowledge and experience and wisdom in your schools or our schools. But at the same time, I see that there's, a, there's a too many things that are holding these people back from doing great things. And often I think when I return back home, I think like, you know, the solution actually could be fairly easy for the future. Just try to unleash this potential and this energy and passion that many of the educators here have. And we would have many more better schools um, and many more happier students like, uh, like you are here. But we are, we are getting to the point where I, <clears throat> I want to open this for the audience as, as well. I know, know that you have, you have something to say, but very quickly, in one sentence, each of you if, you, if you could improve one thing, if you could change one thing, whatever it is in, um, in here in Australia that you think would make education better for each and every child, what, what, would, you, uh, what would you do? What would you recommend? I think there needs to be more opportunity for teachers to connect with students and tailor the learning, whether that comes from resources, time, different classroom processes. I think that being able to cater for students um, and understand what their goals are will improve everything drastically. Right. <laughs> Denise. Um, a school was given $20 million to build a building, right? and I thought, I, I was actually calculating that it co would cost a million dollars to provide lunch for my 1,200 students for a year. So if I had $20 million, I could provide lunch for those kids for 20 years. So that would be two generations. And for my community, that would be an incredible, small, simple thing that could transform my school for a whole lot of reasons. And what I, I kind of want to say is we, we could do really small, simple things that can be transformational right. for Thank the greater good. <laughs> Thank you, David. I think Denise has put it better than I could ever, but I'm just after the 12%. <laughs> <laughs> I, I would really like to see yeah. the funding done properly, okay. and I would really like to see people like Denise given both the 20 million that she needs for her buildings, but also for her lunches. <laughs> okay. Thank you. Thank, thank you, everyone. Now it's your turn, ladies and gentlemen. Just two, two simple rules. First is that remember that question always ends to question mark. <laughs> and second is that your question should be shorter than expected answer. Okay? Otherwise, you can, you can behave as you wish. Who would like to go first? Yes, use your teacher's voice so that we can, we can hear it. Okay, so David, I'll start with a question for you. Uh, when you were speaking, you said you made two mistakes, correct? I, I only mentioned two. I'm not going to say... <laughs> <laughs> I think I said that. Okay, so you said that there was the five... You put the number to the funding, which is the first mistake, and the second was that you shouldn't have said it goes to systems that went to schools. Students, Am I correct actually. Said I said students. Yeah, students. Which make up the schools, yeah. Yeah. So is it done to actually roll out the funding correctly? Um, 
that's my question. Uh, in your research and everything that you've done, was that actually discovered? Was there a possibility to be able to do that? And it's just not being acted on? Well, when you say it's not acted on, I mean, in our report, we actually didn't designate how the money should be distributed. And I think that there's been a lot of talk and a lot, and I'm sure Angela has a view, but I think true to what we were putting, the concept of saying, let's look at each of the schools, build it up from the students, and frankly, fund it that way. And by the way, I fully understand that state governments have got very big, uh, you know, geographical and also numbers to deal with. I fully uh, understand that systems such as the Catholic system are well run and so on. But I think that would be a better way of checking, and I don't know whether Angelo agrees, but whether the SRS is actually applying and would basically go probably to the people we expected it to go rather than in general terms. Thank you. Next one. Yes. So I kind of have a comment rather than a question, but I'll end with a question. That's okay. Okay. I just want to say thank you. Uh, I'm a PhD student at the moment. I'm also a kids' time job school teacher. But I wanted to say that my uh, you inspired my PhD work. It came directly out of your report uh, when you recommended the use of, um, or the employment rather, of instructional leaders in schools to drive literacy in university. So I'm like, thank you for that. And I was like, totally coming here and I'm very you And my question is, um, how are you? <laughs> well, I, I'll answer that one. I mean, I feel a lot better for what you just said, actually. <laughs> um, but good on you for doing it. And by the way, there are a lot of people doing doctorates. And I've got to say, Parsi has inspired. I don't know how many of you got... You had four or five PhD students going through, didn't you? No, I have at least four or five here. Yeah. And then I have <laughs> I mean, another five somewhere else. And by the way, <laughs> four or five PhDs, as you'd know, a supervisor is a ton of work for the supervisor who's got a few other jobs to do. So good on you for doing it. And I think that's another thing we should be advocating, but that's a different forum, that I think a lot of uh, technical thinking into education, just stepping back would be very good. And I'm not convinced it's a merchant banker lawyer who should be the one <laughs> unless I do a PhD. Excellent. Yes. question for you. Uh, how do we bridge the gap? How do we actually get the education minister to listen to this? <laughs> you know, 10 years ago when I came here for the first time, I was a true believer that by speaking the truth and evidence to politicians like ministers and others, that world will change. Four years ago, when I moved here to live, I still believed a little bit, I thought a little bit like this, because you know, I had a luxury to work with the former minister of education here and a, uh, a politician. But if you ask me now, I probably think differently. I, I think it's a, it's a, it's a very difficult, difficult difficult thing to do, and, and Angelo here has much more recent experience of, of you know, how to, how to do that unsuccessfully, because, uh, <laughs> because things don't, just don't... But l let me offer you this, and then I, w I want to give uh, space to, to uh, more, more comments here. But, you know, this is what I've learned here during my time. 
And this is a completely different situation that I had back home in, in any of the Nordic countries. You know, in, in Finland or Sweden and Denmark, Norway, if you want to change education, you just establish a group of experts like teachers and principals, and you come up with the, the kind of a review um, or recommendations, and then the politicians take it seriously because it comes from experts. Okay? When I came here, Adrian Piccoli, who was this person that I mentioned to, one of the first things that he taught me, he said, listen, here, if you want to change the system of education, don't try to do it through the, the ministers and, and politicians and, and those people. Do it through the community, through the parents and the communities. And that's why these conversations we are having here are so important. That's why I spent two days in Adelaide this week to do exactly the same, try to convince people that we need to talk and understand more about what we want and then tell these people what we want. And this is what Adrian told me, that then the politicians, they listened when the, the people who brought them to the office said that, you know, this is what we want. But, you know, if we don't do that, it's very difficult to, you know, expect any, any change. I may be completely wrong or may, maybe I missed a meeting somewhere, but this is, uh, you know, this is how I feel. That's why, you know, these things that we do here right now is such an important thing. And my kind of a, uh, appeal to you is that when you go away from here, you know, take this wisdom and words from David and, and Mim and Denise with you into these conversations that you can, you can start. Because that's what changes things eventually. Am I right or wrong? <laughs> Thank you. Okay, let's, let's take more. Um, we have time for a few more comments here. Yes, sir. Hi, um, my name is Stanley. I'm a primary school principal from Melbourne. I actually flew up for this today. Wow. Wonderful. I was interested and I'm happy for any, any of our panelists to comment. I think internationally we have one of the highest face-to-face -face teaching time um, in the world. And I resonate a lot with uh, Denise being a principal that um, just to get through your basic admin already requires more than your 38 hours time 1.4 before you even have time to talk about educational leadership. So what do you see as the relation between face-to-face or admin um, and its relationship with equity as an educational outcome? That's my first question. And the second one that I've been continually thinking is um, being of an Asian descent, I have not met almost another principal um, or educational leader in Victoria, at least, um, that actually shares that cultural diversity or um, background. So, <laughs> what is, um, again, I, back to that, what is that linked to, to equity? Now, is that also an avenue in which, you know, we are, we are educating a generation of Australians that have such uh, diverse cultural makeup, yet our own sector is um, quite homogenous in some ways. I will be interested in any comments on those. Thank you very much. Very important question. Denise, I wow. think that you're That's, good to start with this one. I've, yeah, actually, I've never, um, I've, I've never had that articulated to me. And um, it just goes to show how possibly inequitable we are because we should be um, working with our young people to, again, choose to go into teaching as role models. It's the same with um, a proactive uh, employment program we have about First Nation teachers in schools. And so, as you know, the, the Department of Education employs, um, you, you know, if a vacancy comes up, it automatically can go to an available First Nation person. 
whether it's a support person or a teacher. So any position I come up goes straight up the line. If there's someone available, I will get them. I have about 10 um, uh, First Nation people in my school that are, in, uh, that are um, you know, either, either support or teachers, which I'm very proud of that. It's a very high um, percentage, but uh, not enough, quite frankly. Um, but, um, yeah, so I think in terms of a proactive employment, cultural, inclusive, et cetera, should be part of that, that mandate. So I can, I can only see that that would have to be a deliberate focus to respond to that. Mm. Anybody else? Do you want to comment on this or David? No, the only thing I'd say, which you probably know, in higher education, it's a bit different. So the question is, I, I'd never thought, I'll have a look into it, but I hadn't realised because the world I live in in universities is very different and for the better. Yeah, yeah that's right. Thank you very much. Good, good points. Uh, there was one over here. Yeah, let me... Ozzy? Sorry that I'm pointing, pointing you. Yes, you. Yeah. I've raised a follow-on from the previous questions. Absolutely, yeah, and, and maybe Angela, who has been working globally recently about these things, uh, knows much more. But yeah, there, there's a big difference. Big differences between how teachers are perceived in different countries. Like, you know, of course, Singapore is a good example of where the teachers are really held in a high prestige. Uh, there are some countries in Europe. Certainly, my my own home country is one where, you know, any prim primary school teacher these days going to a um, cocktail party and uh, she normally she is the, the star of the evening because the people celebrate not only not only what because of what they do but uh, before you can become a primary school teacher or teacher in general in, in some countries you, you need to be really smart and you know I'm, I'm one of those examples that I wanted to be primary school teacher when I left high school and I applied twice and I failed both times and that's why I decided to be a professor in the UNSW and <laughs> And rub shoulders with David Konsky instead. <laughs> but yeah, that's a, they're, they're, they're big differences. And, and you know, this is one of these big issues that we have here in New South Wales and, and all the states in Australia. That how do we improve this? How do we change this, this, uh, this cycle that has been there um, for some time now to the point where teachers would feel that they are appreciated and trusted and respected in terms of what they do? But unfortunately, uh, this is a difficult, very difficult thing to uh, do. I'm going to take a couple of more questions and then we, um, lady, we had to... Yes? In response to that, I wanted to ask Mim then, what would it take to get someone of your intelligence and obviously your passion to go into something like teaching? Because that's what we want. We want young, passionate, intelligent question. people in our profession. So what would it take? What, yeah. what would push you into the teaching profession? I think on that point before, I did want to add, in school at the moment... Oh, as my pet peeve, when there is misassigned blame on teachers, 
they're doing the best they can with what they've got and they have your best intentions at heart and they're trying really hard. So I think from a student perspective, if we change the system, then there isn't a need to blame the teachers for what they're not getting. Um, for me personally, I love teaching. I teach young kids robotics on weekends for fun. I teach younger goalkeepers in my soccer club. Teaching is a passion of mine because, I don't know, just runs in my blood or something. <laughs> um, but um, my first interests lie elsewhere. My passion is engineering. And I would love to teach maybe as a third career. Um, but right now, <laughs> I think it needs, um, you know, we want to create the change through the young people, but the system doesn't allow that at the moment, right? So I would love to have time to focus on kids and their learning and, you know, invest in them. But I see it in my parents that that's not what they get to focus on on a day-to-day, -day, you know. And um, it's two, my parents teach at different high schools and it's different for both of them. I see my dad on one hand teaches at our school. Miss Lofts has got some great support for teachers in place. But then I see my mum who teaches at a different high school who will come home crying after a day of abuse from a student who's had a bad day. And growing up with that comparison, I think I need to wait a bit more until I'm more mature and I can deal with that. And hopefully by that time, the system will have changed a little bit so that there is that support for me if I do choose to come into the teaching sector. Thanks, Ming. Thank you. Wonderful. Yeah, let, let's take one, one more over there in the back row. Yes. <laughs> I had a third back to our friend who mentioned face-to-face -face time and also meant seeing her parents um, and the hours they put in are just the ridiculous hours. You can't blame kids these days, especially if you have parents and teachers for not wanting to go into the profession. I am going to mention another um, report as well, the Gallup report, and ask your opinion on that. I know the Teachers Federation has pushed towards, I guess, those face-to-face -face time or more time in prep. You know, teachers are working over 55 hours a week. What are your thoughts on, I guess, the effect of... But I guess the, I don't know, work intensification I've been um, on the profession the last few years. Is that me or? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, well, yeah. yeah. What can I say? I, um, I think, you know, you know, in Finland they have five years, five years less face-to-face -face, uh, when you add it all up. Um, I think uh, we tried to reduce our, didn't we, Mim? I have less, I've cut my face-to-face -face down as much as possible because it certainly is quality, not quantity. We need to engage, we need to actually um, empower our kids to be agencies of their own learning, which is, I'm big on the agency of their learning. So um, I, I think I've called this thing called workarounds and I think um, as the system goes and as I see my teachers become tighter and tighter, that I'm going to have to have workarounds for meeting those curriculum hours, et cetera. And I think lots of principals, and, you know, I'm at toward the end of probably of my career, so I can be a bit of a punish. You know, I'm not at the beginning of my career and I can push the boundaries. But I think we're going to have to do that from schools, as Pazi said right back at the beginning, is schools are going to have to write the agenda moving forward. And, you know, we're going to have to come up with workarounds around hours. And, you know, I always say, if you don't feed the teachers, they eat the students. That's been my <laughs> philosophy. I'm glad I got that in. Um, but that's, and I think that's, we're going to have to lead from the front. And I know there's principals here doing some fantastic stuff in their schools for the workaround. Thank you. I'm going to take one, <laughs> one last...
I'm going to take one last thing. It's difficult to decide so many enthusiastic people. And then I'm going to ask the panel just for your last reflection, if there's anything, and then we're going to close. But you look like you have something very important to say. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Nick, I am so impressed with you. How you articulate is how teachers do this quite critical from year 12 students. So that's very well done, I'd like to say. Throw it to my parents. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah, credit to your parents, certainly. Um, but what I'd, I'd also like to ask the panel is what do you think about John Hattie saying that class sizes do not matter? Because I agree with a lot of what Sean Hattie has said, but actually I don't agree with that at all. Because as you were saying, we have lots of neurodiversity in our classrooms, mainstream classrooms. We don't actually have other teachers coming in, SLSRs enough, to actually assist us. And so if we want to do the best by all of your students, and so many passionate teachers do, that means you will have to work so many extra hours and eventually perhaps burn out. So do you agree with what John Hattie said, that class size does not matter? Can I go? Yeah, you can go. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Um, I think linking back to the previous question about face-to-face -face learning, I think the reduction of face-to-face -face learning time will only work if you have less kids to teach face-to-face. -face. As someone who receives their education via face-to-face -face learning, I can say that when I'm in a smaller class, there's more focus on my goals and my learning needs. And even if, you know, if you look at that in a small snippet, that 20 minutes that I might get in a smaller class of 15 will overweigh what I might get for an hour in a class of 30 kids, right? Um, and I think, um, an example from my personal life, I went to a small primary school. And like I said, I had to apply to Aladala High School to go there. It's an out-of-area school. Going back to inequities, I couldn't do the courses I wanted at any other local high school. Um, but I went to a small primary school. And now I'm in a pool where, with all the other local primary schools at Aladala High School. And we're co they're constantly talking about, oh, we, know, we, know, we never did this. I did this in year five. I had a small class, and I had teachers that you know, could focus on my learning needs. For example, math has always been a passion of mine. You know, Parsi listed the subjects I do, four-unit math, love it to bits. Um, but, you know, they talk about, oh, you know, we, we can't do this, we never did this. When I was in primary school, we had math groups all the way through. You know, when I was in year three, I was in the year four math group, we had kids in the year five math group. The teachers were able to cater to our learning because we had, we had less students. It was easier to manage. And even going through, when I was in year six, my teacher, you know, she knew that I had a passion for math and she enrolled me in an online school that I would sit outside the classroom and do while the rest of the class was doing the curriculum math. And I think that is something that I am so glad I went to a small school for because I see it reflected in my friends who are just as passionate, if not more passionate about their learning, but because of the size of their school and the size of their classes, they didn't get what I'm grateful to have. Thank you so much. Thank you. Now, David, do you have any last thoughts? After for people? that, nothing. <laughs> uh, I, I will, if I may. Just yeah, yeah. One, please, please. I know you're under time. Yeah. I think this question about teaching and the standing of teachers and what would it take to get brilliant people like Mim to come to to do teaching. 
I, I have to say in the second of my reviews, which was probably as successful as the first, um, we did have a whole part on that. And I want to make it clear that, you know, looking up to teachers is an essential aspect. Finland was the place we looked at, and indeed it's something we have to work on. And it can be done. And some of the suggestions that are there for want, you know, probably no one's read it, but I mean, basically, number one, getting the administration under control so that people like the head of the school don't have to do all that and fill in all the forms, which I had a look at, which as a lawyer were incredible. Um, the second thing that I think was a good thing is basically seeing if we could allow these lead teachers or whatever to be paid better and to be able to, you know, go across. And I know that in part has been put in, but not in whole. These are the sort of things we have to work on. And you can make professions move forward. Why? Because most people do love teachers. That's the interesting thing. I bet you if we went around this whole um, audience and we said, leaving aside yourself, nominate a teacher that changed your life, you'd all have one or two. And if I asked you, have you got a lawyer who changed your life? <laughs> so David, I'm, I'm, I'm really hearing that you're saying that we need the, the Konski 3.0. You said that twice. <laughs> <laughs> I'm serious about that. Dennis, yeah. very brief. Oh, very brief. Um, education is an investment, not a spend. And, and so I think that's the, the mantra we need to put out there, that money to education is, is not about spending, but investing in the future. And so, yeah, let's do that. That's, nice. that's Thank you. Yeah. Now, ladies, ladies and gentlemen, I think we have one more clip. Can I have the next, uh, next piece there? So we should have one more student voice because it's such an important thing to have if we do. Um, education is such a massive part of my life and I know that it's a massive part of the people around me's life. Um, my mum specifically is a teacher and I, I sort of see at home what the impact of, of lack of resources is, is doing to her. I see her working till 10 o'clock at night, stressing about how she feels that she can't provide for her students and, you know, because she's so overworked um, and I've spoken to so many teachers about it and so many students who have sort of felt what this, this lacking of equity in the education system is, is doing to them. Um, I think that with the right amount of resources and funding, schools can provide so many more opportunities to the students to just make them enjoy education along with um, appreciating it and experiencing it throughout their schooling life. I think it's so important. And, and with this, ladies and gentlemen, dear friends, thanks for coming. I want to thank Mim very much for coming and Denise and particularly David Konski. Thank you. That was Parsi Salberg in conversation with David Gonski, Angelo Gavrilatos, Denise Lofts and Mim McDonnell. In the next episode, Professor Salberg is joined by Ricky Cridolfa, frontman of the band City Riots, and Sarah Donnelly, former recipient of the ARIA Music Teacher of the Year, in a conversation titled, Can Rock and Roll Save Our Schools? Thanks for listening to Ideas at the House. <laughs>